Good evening, everyone. Jai Sisi Gorada Madhavaki Jai Gurdivashna Gurupam Paraki Jai. So I was going to maybe talk on a fairly esoteric topic, but some members of the audience might be uh, unable to connect with that. <laughs> um, so I'll just ask for questions. I'll try to talk about answer them in such a way that hopefully everybody will get something from them. As you know, some people here are more familiar with the tradition, have been involved for years, some are involved for a short time, some are just visiting, and so it's difficult to, too, too high for some, too low for others. Everybody has to be a little, a little patient, and hopefully we can reply in a way that uh, everybody can um, Benefit, me, me included. Maybe yeah. this question would be a good one. This one I was thinking of. It's, um, I know it maybe usually isn't, but um, <laughs> a little self-deprecating there. Uh, that uh, you should, when you sit down to chant Japa, you should sit down and expect something to happen. I think. Yeah. You yeah. Said something? Would, yeah. Would, would that be a good one to elaborate on? Well, maybe. He's, uh, of course, Krishna Chaitanya is referring to one of our uh, principal practices, which is um, to, um, which is called japa. Japa is a Sanskrit word that um, refers to, for example, the repetition. Of a mantra, mantra japa. So a mantra is a is a sound formula. The implications of which can we cannot do justice to, really, by writing an explanation, a commentary on. Although that may be helpful, but by uh, receiving the mantra from a proper source and then uh, chanting the mantra and hearing um, meditating upon it then it's the, the, all that is compressed into the mantra the implications which transcend whatever you could thoughts you could have after all the word mantra man means in this case mind and tra means to uh, to cross or uh, to cross beyond the mind hmm? so there are things and there are thoughts and most of our thoughts are about things hmm? so that's a problem <laughs> because the best things in life are not things right but the mind is a peculiar uh, sense. We refer to it as the sixth sense sometimes. Or if we include our knowledge acquiring senses like hearing, seeing, tasting with our working senses in the form of hands and legs. For example, there are six of each, then the mind is the eleventh. But in each case, the mind is is peculiar. It's kind of the central hub that makes sensual experience possible. So, for example, if I'm not thinking about it, then to that extent, even if my senses are in touch with the thing, I won't experience it. Right? When the mind, or the extent that the mind is in touch with the sense, which is in touch with the thing, the thing is experienced. So all the senses in this sense to afford us experience, which occurs in the mind, is dependent on the mind being uh, uh, to one extent or another focused. Hmm. Obviously, if it's less focused, we can experience it to some extent, but you could be even in a very um, profound sensual experience and have your mind, for example, through meditation somewhere else and not experience it. Right? So. So the mind is is peculiar. It's mundane. It's material. 
it's 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 not physical matter we would refer to it as psychic matter hmm. now you know this is something that is that the scientific community is only inching in the direction of acknowledging that there's something called psychic matter because of their failures to definitively demonstrate that subjective experience is just the brain. You follow me? In other words, there's a there's a concerted effort in the scientific and philosophical community of the world, hmm, in the majority, um, to reduce subjective mental experiences to the objective. There is no mind, there's only a brain. Or there's a mind that is like steam coming off water, an epiphenomenon that doesn't really have any bearing on anything that happens. It has no causal efficacy. That's not how we experience life. We experience life as if we have a mind, we think of something, and then that has causal efficacy, which takes the shape of doing something. Hmm? But um, this is the, the, the dominant philosophical and scientific um, um, uh, perspective, is that that's an illusion, and there's only the physical. Hmm? Physicalism, naturalism, materialism, philosophically speaking. This is the dominant um, thinking in neuroscience, in science of mind. Um, uh, big question, How? Uh, what is the biological basis for consciousness? They haven't figured out. What's wrong with that question? What is the biological basis of consciousness? What's wrong with the question is, there is no biological basis for consciousness. But they don't, that's not even like, you know, there must be. <laughs> that's how unbiased science is. Of course, it's influenced by certain data that's interpreted in a certain way to give them reason to believe that, well, it, it, it must be. There's no ghost, there's no, there's no thought world, Really. Anyway, so not everybody agrees with this, obviously. Transcendentalists, um, which we talked about last night, in particular. But some people in the scientific and philosophical community um, as well. <clears throat> and the attempt to demonstrate conclusively, um, without any gap, hmm, where there's a leap of faith and a conjecture only, that mind is really the brain, Consciousness is just somewhere in the brain. If we just find that spot, then we turn it on or off. This has been extremely difficult to um, to find. And when I say extremely difficult to find, what I mean by that is that they've been trying to do this for a while now. For how long? Well, you know, for a few decades, maybe close to a century. Ever since consciousness became important, which is ever since quantum physics, quantum perspective was, was had to be accepted as well, it's, it's actually happening. In other words, prior to that, you have the classical physics and it was thought that everything was figured out, how everything was done. The forces of matter were what they were, electronic, uh, electromagnetism, gravity, strong and weak nuclear, nuclear forces and everything. That, that's how everything happens. There's no need for consciousness, just whatever that is. It's just not something to think about. We know how everything works by these forces, was the idea. But then the quantum perspective just kind of like turned that a little bit upside down because there's some, um, well, to be kind of like crude about it in an explanation, consciousness obviously has a has a role to play. Hmm? Whether, the, whether, whether the subatomic realm we find a particle or or it's a wave it depends upon observation so the observation 
has some role. So anyway, you, you're familiar with this, I'm sure. So, um, so you know, that happened, I don't know, be, you know, beginning in the 20s, and there's been kind of a attempt to, to deny the, the quantum reality because it, it, it contradicts classical physics and, and we'll figure it out later. You know, it doesn't make sense, but, but anyway. So that's becoming more and more difficult uh, to do. 75% or so of everything that happens in the world of technology is based on quantum mechanics, quantum or the quantum whatever reality. So it's, it's, it's not going away. At any rate, That interest then, or the fact that consciousness, the subjective feature of the world is important and has to be dealt with, has only become more apparent going forward since 1920 or so. And, and in that century, our instruments for examining the external world had become more and more refined in our te techniques and so forth exponentially. So what I'm saying is, a hundred years, given the scientific tools hmm, and methodology for exploring what's out there, hmm, have enabled us to look harder hmm, and deeper in a hundred years than we've been able to prior to those having those instruments and technologies for thousands of years. Hmm? In other words, well, just to give a simple example, if you want to observe with your eyes, it's one thing. If you want to observe with a telescope and a microscope, wow, you just really exponentially increased your capacity to look closer at things at distances and close up to things as well, right? Mm -hmm. So it's been a long, long, long time, is my point, although it's only in our contemporary times in particular, mm -hmm. which seems more recent, it's consciousness studies and so forth. It's been a long, long, it's been like thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Hmm, comparatively, looking into this, I'm not not getting too. Uh, they're not they're 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 not figuring it out. And of course, we say it's because it's it's not because there is mind, and above that there is consciousness itself. That it ref, that the mind and the psychic matter can can reflect can reflect pure consciousness and then start to act like consciousness. That's where the ego is in that subtle matter. The identity, the sense of self that we have. Hmm. So, at this time, then there are some heretics from the, you know, or people who are in the community of science and philosophy that are moving away from that attempt to reduce consciousness and mind to brain and, and matter and are open to the idea that there is something called consciousness that's uh, not, uh, let's say, a product of the brain. I mean, even even we it was thought it's obviously only a product of the human brain, but now they, they find it even, even insects have egos or a sense of identity, sense of self. Mm. A decade ago, you would have thought you would have been a, thought a lunatic and dismissed from the you know from tenure you know in a university if you taught something like that. Panpsychism. This is, original form of this is, is Vedanta, hmm? the uh, mystic schools of uh, of Indian um, spiritual practice and philosophy, hmm? but, uh, uh, centered on the Atma, consciousness, which has been the subject central subject there. The idea being that consciousness is the basis of everything, because anything short of consciousness you can dismiss as being here today and gone tomorrow, even the sun. But you can't dismiss consciousness because 
it requires consciousness to dismiss consciousness. It's like the bottom of everything, right? That's everything coming out of that. The gross matter, the physical matter, coming out of the psychic matter, and both of these forms of matter are kind of energized or turned on by the touch of consciousness, just like a, a, a magnetic, like a flake of iron is moved at a distance by a magnet. So consciousness doesn't touch matter, but it has this influence upon matter, mystical, right? <laughs> you want to say, well, if consciousness moved matter in some way, then we would like to measure it. That means, that's to say, it's physical. <laughs> it's not. So the whole idea that you should be able to measure it and, 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 and quantify it, hmm? quantitative things can be measured and, and, and quantified, is, is, is contradicts the whole premise, right? That, that, it, that it's, 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 uh, it's different than matter. Hmm? It has this bridge. Consciousness causes a bridge, creates a bridge between physical world and consciousness itself in the realm of the psychic matter, the mind. Hmm? It's a very subtle form of matter that has the ability to reflect consciousness, Just like a metal sheet could reflect light of the sun and then give off light. Hmm? And you could look at it and say, that's the sun. But if you could take away the metal, you could see the whole sun itself. Right? So a super subjective realm hmm? beyond mind, which typically is absorbed in thoughts about things. Hmm? And this is then causing us further bondage, attachment to the things, and so forth. But mind being different than the other senses, it could also be a tool and turned. And that's what mantra is for. So to focus the mind on mantras is to deliver oneself from the bondage of thoughts about things. And then identification with the things, which is a recipe for disappointment, because the things don't turn out to be what you thought they were, and they don't last. Hmm? They're here today, and they're they're gone tomorrow. So it's a pro- it's a problem, right? So so mantra to to deliver the mind really, really means to deliver you from the limitations of the mind. Hmm? It's a it's it's a transmental, trans let's say trans psychological, and trans rational exercise. It's not irrational hmm, to sit, for example, and invoke the mantra, Hari Krishna Hari Krishna 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 Hari 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 Ram Hari Ram 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 Hari Hari. Now people might think you're crazy for doing that, uh, and that it's irrational. But we look at it as as a as a an exercise that is not irrational, but it picks up where reason leaves off. Mind, thought, intellect, and so forth. Um, They cannot, uh, under themselves, they're not sufficient vehicles for taking us to the realm of unfettered consciousness, free from thought, free from attachment to things, hmm? consciousness, unto itself. Hmm? Now it's functioning. We are a unit of this consciousness functioning in relation to a mind and a body. Hmm? It's like looking at the pasture through a hole in the fence. We think because we have eyes we can see, because we have ears we can hear, because we have a tongue we can taste, but actually the ears are getting in the way of our hearing. The eyes are getting in the way of our seeing. The tongue is getting in the way of our tasting. The mind is getting in the way of our knowing. Whoa, that's like really backwards, so to speak. It's really forward, but it's, it's the opposite direction of how people would you know, generally conduct themselves. Hmm? Right? Turn off your mind. How will you know anything? Mm-hmm. Try it. It's not so easy to turn off the mind, but there's a discipline for that. And 
if you want to ask someone what is the nature of the mind, well, we could go to the neuroscientists. We could go to philosophy of mind, who more typically, in a majority, have this materialistic conception of it, idea of it. We could go to psychologists and ask what's the nature of the mind. Or we could go to someone who, can, who, who has been able to control the mind. Who? Maybe she knows what the mind is. If you could, could, in other words, it's constantly one of the things we all know about it. It's constantly fleeting, thinking in different ways and, and different directions, and and uh, it, it, it's difficult to focus it. When we focus it, we can get something done. Hmm? Hmm. The more we can focus it, the more we can accomplish, and and we and the more we can know, right? If I'm in now, uh, Kishore Krishna was telling me that in, in school at the university in uh, in uh, Asheville, where he's a student, in some of his classes, before the class, the teachers ask the students to sit and do a simplistic kind of exercise of mindfulness, which is basically to not just to sit and witness the fact that your mind is going in this way and that way and this way and that way. And in doing that, in observing that, see the, see the futility of that and see that the cause, that's the cause of disturbance following this one, then following that one and following that one. And I got to do this. And, and the mind is dictating and oppressively ru- ruling over us. Hmm? We can't be, we have to just follow these thoughts all the time. Hmm? And just be what be, and but we have to follow thoughts that tell us what you should be this, you should do that, and so forth. So, so there's a, there's a sense hmm, that by focusing in the obvious, so that now you're going to be more focused in the class, right? Hmm? You know, a, little, a few minutes, five minutes of mindfulness, and now you can pay attention. Because if you pay attention, you're going to you're going to learn, you're going to know more. Hmm? So everyone accepts. That if we can control the mind, we could know more. Hmm? <laughs> right? I mean, even in the material sense. So what we're saying is, yeah, we think we should control the mind. And completely controlling the mind hmm, is what is essential to yoga. Completely controlling the mind. And there's a kind of knowing that comes out of that that is that constitutes knowing the self that is now freed from from the distraction of thoughts all these thoughts are just distracting from the self which without which there's no there's no functioning mind hmm, to think about things right consciousness is like that magnet it turns on hmm, matter and the whole show is going round and round and round uh, just like I've given an example before in order to, what's more important, the television or the viewer? Well, you have to have the viewer to turn on the television, right? But it's also possible that turning on a television, it could take over the life of the viewer, and he'd become like a couch potato or something. And you couldn't like, like wake up. You, you, there's another life here separate from that. Hmm? So, the show of material nature, the movement of things and, and the thoughts and whatnot about them, this has been turned on by consciousness, but it's taken over this atomic particle of consciousness, Atma, that we are. And so in a virtual reality, we're living, rising and falling on the, the acquisition and the loss of things, the happinesses and the sads, and uh, pursuing the happinesses as temporary as they are, and trying to avoid the distresses, um, and so forth. So spiritual life, yoga, spiritual transrational practice is about in one sense controlling the mind and as we already know that's the way to know <laughs> so if, if if you want to know what's the nature of the mind it might be useful to talk to somebody who's controlled who could sit hmm, and not only just watch thoughts as they go here and there but stop those thoughts 
relation to things. And what we find is such knowers who have mastered the mind, they have experience of themselves that which in a sense pr provides them a kind of knowing by which they feel there's nothing more that needs to be known. And a happiness, a joy, right? It's not dependent upon acquisition, whether it's day or night or hot or cold or any of these dualities. So consciousness is beyond the dualities that are created in the mind. You like this, you don't like that. You may think it's hot, I may think it's cold. Which is it? These are all just partial readings that are we are gathering through the limited instruments of mind and senses. In fact, it's neither hot or cold. Right? It's beyond the reality is lies beyond those mental dualities. So that's why I say the hot, the cold, the good, the bad, this is like looking through the hole in the fence trying to see what the pasture's like. It's green. A lot of things you could miss, right? So, mantra is then for knowing the mind, knowing the self by controlling the mind, right? Mantra, so to, to liberate oneself from thought, free oneself from the limitations of thought, to know beyond thought. This idea that, that, that reality is beyond thought and things. I said the best things in life are not thoughts, neither thing, things, neither thoughts about them. You see how fleeting thoughts are, right? So, uh, 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 you can't think your way, so to speak, out of the world, into, into transcendence. Hmm? That, that thoughts are part of this world. Hmm? So they don't have currency for taking us to that world. But if we take a sound from that side, hmm? for example, a mantra, which is a formula of sound. Now... What do I mean by that? There's a understanding amongst mathematicians. There's two ways of looking at mathematical equations. One way that, that mathematical equations are looked at is that human mathematicians come up with equations that somehow explain something about how nature works. The other school of mathematics is that Mathematical equations are embedded in nature and they're discovered and they explain something about how the world works. Now, I'll give you an example of the latter that should be compelling. The latter is, would be a less reductive, materialistically speaking, worldview. That is the great Indian mathematician example, the great Indian mathematician Ramanujan, Srinivas Ramanujan, hmm? from South India. There's a movie about him that was made in recent years, um, a very nice movie. And um, he was a young uh, mathematician in India without the kind of training, for example, that was going on at Oxford, where people like Bertrand Russell were in attendance in the in the or, or in the faculty and other big thinkers, right? And of course, British were ruling over India at the time. The Indians didn't know anything from the British point of view. They needed to be educated and so forth. But Ramanujan, he was a worshiper of of um, the goddess uh, uh, Radha, Lakshmi. Hmm? And um, and in a religious, deeply religious person, and he would he received for some reason the goddess in his meditation 
and the goddess he would receive these mathematical equations. Hmm? That's where he got them. And then then he would you know play them out and they would explain certain things. And so I think he maybe wrote some some letter to Oxford or something like that and sent some of his work, some of his equations and first they were dismissed by some but one 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 of the faculty was was impressed and was not as bigoted hmm, um, as the others and made uh, for a, a way for him to be accepted into into Oxford because he was fascinated by this uh, fellow's equations where was he coming up with these equations and it's a beautiful story but uh, ultimately he became you know one of the most uh, honored members ever I think it was Cambridge it was either either Oxford or Cambridge Cambridge uh, honored members and is to this day that ever you know walked the halls of of Cambridge and he died as a young man I think from t- maybe tuberculosis um, it was very very unfortunate but um, his equations are still like some of the most fascinating equations that, that, that in in that in, 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 in mathematics and they're used in various ways and so and he got them from the goddess he got them from meditation hmm? so it's a good example of this one school that says mathematic equations are embedded in in in, in, in somehow in in nature and they're discovered and they're they're like keys that explain different features hmm? now taking that to the idea of mantra hmm? mathematical equations are explaining something about how the natural world works mantras are similar sound or they're sound equations hmm? that are meant to take us beyond the natural world hmm? and reveal something about the subjective world of consciousness so there are mathematical equations that tell us something about the objective world hmm? and then there are these mantras cryptic sounds that tell us something about the super subjective world beyond mind consciousness proper what's possible in transcendence hmm? the nature of enlightened life we could talk about it in a basic way or there's more uh, uh, nuance and detailed ways to talk about uh, the variegatedness of transcendence different possibilities there so these mantras then um, if you take the mantra and you repeat the mantra this is called japa that's what the question is about japa and now our we do japa of the of the Hare Krishna Ma Mantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Ram, 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 Hare Hare. This is three uh, words that are like the logos, divine logos, like names of God, let us say. Hmm? So the logos, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's what? It's, it's sound and it's logic it has meaning to it it has some right it's not just a meaningless sound so there's three names Hare Krishna and Rama and they repeat it in such a way as it comes out uh, into 16 hmm. And because each name is it has two syllables, it's 32 syllables. So it's a 32-syllable mantra consisting of th- three names, but invoked in such a way that they come out 16 times. Hmm. Just to give you a little of the arithmetic of it all. <laughs> so uh, uh, this is a um, very uh, powerful mantra. And in the sacred texts of the Hindus, it's said to be most efficacious in the quality of the time in which we live which is called Kali Yuga. Kali Yuga means the quality of the time we live in now that's that's characterized by um, hypocrisy Hmm? and especially by in that sense by 
um, um, if I want to say authority that misrepresents. Hmm. Um, uh, uh, we may vest authority in persons, but they don't live up to that. You know, it's obviously that our times are characterized by by such, whether it be in the religious realm. Catholics have had a big problem with it. Hindus have. Gaudias have. Um, in, the, in the political realm, in, in authorities, uh, vested authorities are, you know, have uh, disappointed people. Anyway, there are other characteristics also of the Kali Yuga, but it speaks about a quality of time, and and sacred texts of the Hindus say that that in this t- particular yuga or millennia hmm, of Kali, then the most efficacious means for deliverance is is in its invoking of this particular mantra. It's mentioned in the Kali Santran Upanishad. Iti sodasakam namna Kali Kamashanashanam. Sarvabhedeshu drishate Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare. Itisodasakam Nam, he says, these 16, as I said, names, are most efficacious in Kali Yuga and all the sacred texts of the Hindus. They study them carefully. They, they, they say that about this time. So, um, this is our uh, main practice. And we do this chanting in different ways. We do it... Uh, accompanied with instruments out loud, or we do it in japa, in meditation, which is what you're asking about. Hmm? So we, the way we do that is with beads, like a, like a rosary. Hmm? So then the rosary is made out of the sacred uh, basil, hmm? sacred basil, tulsi, which is uh, miraculous in terms of its medicinal um, properties and um, is very central within the uh, uh, mytho-historical narratives hmm, within Hinduism about the, the play of the, the, uh, of the Absolute, the drama hmm, of the Absolute. This is, of course, a prominent feature of our uh, theology. We think that, that um, if you are... Full, why move? Hmm. If you're complete, why move? People move out of a sense of incompleteness. But, we say, there's also a kind of movement out of completeness. It's not out of, driven by a sense of incompleteness, but by the completeness itself. So I could be so full, so content, so happy, that I have to celebrate it. Hmm? Hmm? So this is this is makes for movement in transcendence. If God is everywhere, how can God move? Hmm? Well, in celebration of His fullness, hmm, He is the God that Nietzsche, Nietzsche Nietzsche said, if there was one, He'd be a dancer. Hmm? What's making him dance? Hmm? That's this song, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, <laughs> Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare, chanted hmm? with a view by the practitioner to enter into a dynamic union with the Godhead. What I mean by a dynamic union, I mean a union like in love when there's you and I, when we fall in love, you and I become we. Become a dynamic. You don't get canceled out. I don't get canceled out. I accept your heart as mine. You accept my heart as yours. And now there's this new kind of duad, hmm? right? So to become one with the Godhead in love, and love implies movement in transcendence rather than just stillness in transcendence, like you know, like a nirvana, like stillness. Hmm? Yes, that peace is important, but love is another thing. 
That's important. That's, that, yeah. In love, you can it, it can even look like there's no peace. <laughs> but, but, but there is. <laughs> there is, right? So, so, so this is the the way in which there's we say there's movement and transcendence, and sometimes it's depicted in the mytho-historic narratives as a drama. Sometimes we, we, we depict it in art, the, the drama of Krishna, and in, in, in the herding the cows and playing the flute. All these things have um, deep significance and implications. And they, in, in, in summary, they constitute this possibility and transcendence of the individual consciousness, the atma, the atomic particle of consciousness interacting with its source. Hmm? And in such a way that if the finite particle is to interact with the with the with the with the infinite source, for there to be intimacy intimacy in that relationship, the infinite will have to take on a finite like appearance. Because if the finite comes close to the infinite, it's just going to go, whoa, whoa. Mm-hmm. You're going to say, oh my God, oh God, oh. But this is a little boring for God. Hmm? People always oming, you know, distance from me, can't get close to anybody, hmm? got to put on sunglasses so they don't be like them. So the Godhead taking on a finite-like appearance hmm, affords the infinite intimacy with the finite. This is called Leela, the play of the Absolute. It's a drama. Hmm? Hmm. And this is this is then a transcendence that's moving, that's dancing. So it's it's, it's complex. It's theologically very. Um, developed idea. And and there the God has used the term from Hartshorn is dipolar. He's dipolar. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fascinating idea. So uh, so the Japa the Japa Right, this chanting. Yes, you should sit down and do japa and expect to go somewhere. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. And you got to pay attention to the japa. You should sit and and what I mean by that 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 when you sit to do japa, you what did I say? You should expect to experience something. That something's going to happen. Right. Yeah. So if it, that means like, if you let's say you go to a football game, something's going to happen. So you're you're there. You're going to pay attention. Something's happening, and you want to pay attention so you don't miss it. You know, any play or something like that, right? Or whatever it is, the movie. You're going to pay attention. Hmm. So what we're saying is that inside this mantra, there's a there's a movie. Hmm. The love life of the Godhead is playing out. Hmm. It's coming in a sound formula, hmm? very cryptic and coded. Hmm? Now, you, so knowing that and knowing that this the philosophy and the theology that underlies all of this, now you have impetus to to pay attention, hmm? right? To sit and do your japa meditation like that. So these types of thoughts should be on our mind, and then we. Can, to the point where you sit and do japa and you're really paying attention and then you get experience and then it starts to be starts to become such that the medicine that is the meditation starts to become the food hmm? because the first thing that the me- that the mantra does is it removes the poison hmm, of our attachment to things which is crippling us hmm? by making them revealing them to be as vacuous as they are and giving us a slight experience of shutting off the mind 
in relation to the mantra and tasting some something that's in, that's inside the mantra. So it's a, a bliss, an overwhelming bliss. Hmm? And you get as as this mantra serves as medicine. And I'll give you an example. It's sometimes cited. In India, it's easy to get jaundice, at least it used to be. And um, and the cure for one of the cures for jaundice, a natural cure for jaundice, is to eat sugarcane, which, if you have jaundice, tastes bitter. Now, sugarcane is sweet, but if you have jaundice, it tastes bitter. So you take it as medicine, but as the jaundice goes away, the sweetness that was in the cane comes out. So in this mantra, there's sweetness, there's bliss, there's waves and waves and waves of bliss hmm? that will cause certain physical reactions hmm? in the body involuntarily, weeping, hmm? hairs standing on end, trembling, change of color, the complexion, fainting, and sometimes to get more than one at the same time, and so forth. I mean, tears of tears of, of joy, just, it's, it's like, it's over. It's over. The struggle is over. This is the beginning. It's over. <laughs> so, so, it's all in the mantra. You realize this is in the mantra. So what was the medicine? As you start to become cured, you're finding there's a taste for it. So now medicine becomes a food. Now, you don't have to think, I should sit down and eat today. It's time to sit down. I should eat. You just, when's the next meal? <laughs> what are we going to eat? <laughs> you know. So that's, that's ultimately how we, should, we, we start to approach the mantra and the japa. When can I do japa? Hmm? Hmm. Is there in between? There's japa, hmm? Hmm. right? Everything else becomes music in the background. What's really happening is the japa, hmm? the japa, and then then he's not just sitting. She's not just sitting and doing japa, but the japa is doing you, hmm? and even when thinking, talking to others, this japa is going on. This japa is going on. Hmm? Not in a forced way, but it, it just it, it take, takes over the, the one's being, so to speak. Hmm? So the idea is that, it, 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 as you can see, there's, it, 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 there's some great potential in this, and in good association, and this is talked about by an experiencer and, and, and explained and philosophized about. So we get some, we're compelled to try it out. <laughs> like if I go to a movie. And I try to tell you about it, and it was fantastic. The best that I can do is to, is to get you to think, I should go see the movie. How much can I convey it, right? But I could compel you to want to go yourself. So you do. You sit down and you chant, and then you try to pay attention because something could happen. It will happen. And, and you see it, and, you, and all you see it happens in others. We have a succession, a lineage of great saints who experience just from this mantra. Hmm? So this way we, we have confidence, we have some faith, it's not blind. Hmm? We have some conviction, let's say. Hmm? And then we, and then, do you have any experience from chanting the mantra? You have some, see, he knows, he has it. Hmm? But then you, you, but you've got to keep taking the medicine. Hmm? Keep taking the medicine and do it in a regular way, regular time, quiet time, in the morning. Make time in the morning hmm? before the world starts, before the sun comes up. Japa. Hmm? Then you're prepared for the onslaught of thoughts and things trying to get your attention and capture you and so forth. And you have, you're, you're inoculated from it, uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, uh, you've got other thoughts, spiritual thoughts. So this is what I mean. You should sit down and, and expect uh, to experience something. You should. And if you don't, you also have the confidence, well, it's not the mantra. 
because I see it, I understand the philosophy well enough, and I see it happening to others. And I've had some experience myself, but not today, because, well, my walking was so different from my sitting. You have to make the sitting and the walking one. In other words, if I sit effectively, it's going to affect how I walk, how I move, and where I allow my mind to go and my senses to go. And if, I, if, I, if I'm consciously reeling them in, so to speak, and, 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 and restricting them from restricting me, proper understanding, restricting them from restricting me, People think, well, why should you restrict your senses? Because they're restricting me from knowing all that I am. They're taking me into the into the world of things only, into a virtual reality. They want to go turn off the computer. <coughs> so if your sitting is effective, then it will affect your walking. And then when your walking is affected, it will affect your sitting. And then these two become one. Because you're going to sit for some time and you're going to have other things to do. Eventually the things that you have to do are only in relation to the mantra and the epiphany and experience that it affords you. And then there's a way of moving in the world of doing all things from an entirely different motive than ordinary people are doing them. And that motive driving your interaction with sense objects has the opposite effect. Because then you, you're seeing, hearing, touching things, if you will, all in relation to the source that you're experiencing through the mantra. You're turning everything into an opportunity to serve the Godhead. Here we, we cook nicely in mantra and ritual. We offer the food to Krishna. So, we're not eating it for ourselves. We're eating what's left over. <laughs> and he's generous in that regard. Yeah. Everything's good. So, those are some thoughts about the Japa. It's a real exciting adventure. And there's a nice book also called Briyat Bhagavatamrita. It's a story. It's a story of one Siddha telling his story. And the effect of his mantra, and where he went, I went here, went here, when he took me here, took me, and it ultimately it took me to, it took me to everywhere that's con, every realm that's contained within the mantra, and the realm of the mantra itself, Brihat Bhagavatamrita. It's an ancient book from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and arguably um, uh, thousands of years ago. Story of of, a, of an adept. Name is Gopakumar. Gopakumar Kijai. So, what's the time? 7.40. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Shri Radha Krishna Kijai. Gaur Bhakta Gunda Kijai. Gaur Premanandi. Hari Hari.